You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Aaron Lowry, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. My life changed at the drop of a dime. Reading one personal finance book changed everything. It gave me the vocabulary to understand that I had enough money. What it didn't do is give me the courage to act on it. My identity, my habits, my purpose were so tied up into first being a doctor and then second making money that I had no idea what living looked like outside of them. So I had a panic attack, fell into a deep depression. And then I started writing every day on a blog called Diversify. I wrote initially about my hopes and dreams and then eventually about my actual plans. To take action, I had to do more than just think about it, more than just read, more than just philosophize. I had to take one powerful yet simple action. I had to write about it. You may be stuck in the same place. Maybe instead of pivoting to a life of purpose, you are struggling to start to make the right financial moves to free yourself from living hand to mouth. Maybe you just need someone to provide the right prompt, ask the right question, give you the right exercises to get you to write about how to improve your financial future. Hey, everybody, I'm going to do something today that I rarely do. I'm going to ask you a favor. For the next two months, I am doing a survey on Earn and Invest. This will help me figure out how to best serve you, my audience, as well as let's tell the truth, there are going to be some advertisements on the show. So I'd like to make sure those advertisements at least fit you and who you are in order to do that, we need to know more about you. If you go to earninvest.com slash survey, again, that's earninvest.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. It'll only take a few minutes. Tell us about yourself, and then we can make Earn and Invest a better podcast and have it fit your needs better. On top of that, Airwave Media is going to enter you to win a $500 Amazon gift card if you go ahead and tell us about yourselves. Go to earninvest.com slash survey. Again, this will be for the next few months, and I would totally appreciate it if you would check it out. Erin Lowry is the author of the Broke Millennial series of books. Her first book was named by MarketWatch as one of the best money books of 2017, and her style is often described as refreshing and conversational. She has appeared on CBS Sunday Morning at CNBC and Fox and Friends. She has written for the New York Times, USA Today, Fast Company, Cosmopolitan Magazine, and Refinery29. 
Her forthcoming book is entitled Broke Millennial Workbook, Take Control and Get Your Financial Life Together. Aaron Lowry, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to go back to 2017. You had just published your book, Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Let's start with the personal. How has your financial life changed since 2017? Well, I'm not broke anymore. I think that's probably the <laughs> well, first. Well, there goes most, the brand. <laughs> yeah. First, most important part. I personally am not broke. You know, it's always interesting. You, man, Broke Millennial is 10 years old. It turned 10 in January of this year, January 2023. So started as a blog back in 2013. First book came out in 2017, second in 2019, third in 2020, now the workbook in 2023. And I remember very early people saying like, what are you going to do when you're not a millennial anymore? I was like, well, fun fact, always will be. So don't worry about that part. But then well, what about when you're not broke anymore? And that was a big part of the reason I never put the, it was never the broke millennial referring to me specifically. It really was always about a generational feeling. And I live in New York city. So even though I'm not technically broke, let me tell you that there are lots of moments in life where it's not that I still feel broke, but I have constant exposure to things I cannot afford. And that is a very interesting way to live life because I think there is a lot of happiness in feeling content and constant exposure to things you can't have, which all of us have to some degree, thanks to social media, really can make it hard to feel content or at least like a lot of gratitude. That has to then be a consistent practice. So it has been a very long journey since 2017. And also including the fact that I have gone through really bad phases of burnout. You mentioned a depression in the beginning of this. I had really bad burnout coupled with a depression after my second book came out. And there's no easy solve for any of this. And I, I think especially because the thing that causes the burnout, especially when you're self-employed, you have to keep doing. So trying to recover when you have to stay in it and active is a really painful process. And to tie all this back to money, for me, the real freedom and the big change that has happened in my life is that I have become a much higher earner than I was when I started the brand. And I was able to give myself a sabbatical and be able to really take time off from work for a period of time. And then when I returned to work, being able to say no to things that didn't feel good to me and to what I wanted to do and really only focus on the kind of work that aligned with where I saw myself going in the future. I have to ask, of course. So what happened after that second book? What do you think caused the burnout? I think it was oof, a combination of a lot of change was happening in my life all at once. So I had gotten married, moved, done the book, gone on tour, and then adopted a dog all within about six months, which when then you finally have a second to slow down and take a breath and you don't have a bunch of stuff to plan and to organize and to strategize and to distract yourself, you, you're just sort of like, oh my gosh. And oddly to, to quote another podcast right now, I was listening to Mark Maron's podcast recently and in his intro, he was talking about his recent comedy special that he had come out with and how he went into a depression after it came out. And he referred to it as postpartum. I don't know that I'm going to use that word. <laughs> But there is something about you're looking so forward to a thing, it comes out, it's done, it's also out of your hands. 
and then it's gone and you, you don't know what's next and you have to try to figure out what's next. And there was a lot of that when my second book came out, I went on a big scale book tour that I created and launched myself and was quite successful and came home to feel like, is that ever going to happen again? Am I ever going to reach that level again? How am I going to feel if I can't keep up with this? I'm also really tired. Do I want to keep doing it to this level? And that is the part that a lot of people don't share publicly about <laughs> anybody's work. You know, this isn't specific to authors, entrepreneurs, you know, self-employed folks. I think a lot of people go through versions of this struggle and we tend not to talk about it terribly openly. And I'm just abundantly thankful that I had put myself financially in a position to step away, not until about a year later when I was like, this feels really bad. Like I really need some time. Also, you know, we were coupling with a global pandemic. I lived in an epicenter. So there was a lot happening (laughs) across the board. But it, like many other people being forced to also slow down in the pandemic, put me in a situation where I did get a chance to really breathe and evaluate what is it about my job that I like? What do I want to keep? What do I want to say no to? And if I do say no to those things, I know there's financial consequences. And am I okay with that? I just want to connect with this idea. And I see this often with people's money journey. And you were talking about how after your book tour after this great success, you get home and you're like, oh my God, am I ever going to be this successful again? This idea of loss aversion. And people forget sometimes when we do meet our dreams, as opposed to being overly excited or happy, you almost go into panic mode and get even doubly scared that you're going to lose what you've built up. You also mentioned the pandemic. And so you started Broke Millennial 2013. Your first book came out in 2017. Life has changed a lot, even since 2017, right? We've had social political upheaval. We had the pandemic. We've had economic upheaval. Have the money rules changed at all? I mean, since you started writing about this stuff? I say it in the workbook. The only major one for me, I mean, yes, let me just first preface by saying, yes, money rules have changed. I've also been a little bit of an instigator about some of the really traditional rhetoric that you hear from the jump. But The one that I adhered to early on and would now vehemently disagree with and wish I could go take it out of my first book and rewrite it, which I did do in the workbook. So I'm like, you did. I noticed, I did, (laughs) I did notice, by the way, there was one point where you're like, I would change this. Go ahead. I would change this. And that is the advice to if you're paying off debt, only have a thousand dollars in your emergency fund. I think that is actively bad advice now. And, you know, not to just keep making this a pandemic centric podcast, but if that didn't teach us that that's bad advice, I don't know what will. And the reason, and it's not just something, it's bad advice without, you know, a follow up. Follow up being obviously there's nuance. That's one also area that I'm a little bit different. I love some shades of gray. I love some nuance, which sometimes makes it difficult to create hard and fast rules. But when it comes to your emergency fund, $1,000 is simply not enough. For so many of us, $1,000 will not cover an emergency. So I would say bare minimum should be one month's worth of living expenses. That should be your bare minimum emergency fund, even if you're paying off debt. That number is going to be a little bit different for everybody. But when I also say bare minimum, we're taking out any fun, non-essential thing. So we're just talking about you know, paying for your housing, paying for your phone, paying for internet, because these are all still very critical things in our lives. (laughs) 
food for you, food for any dependents, pets, children, what have you, your transportation, uh, your insurance, your bare minimum debt payments, because we don't want to destroy our credit card in this or our credit score in this time. So that is how you start to develop the bare minimum living expenses number. The $1,000 bit was a great idea probably 15, 20 years ago. Life is a lot more expensive now. And I also don't want folks having only saved $1,000 in their emergency fund, and then they've done a great job of paying off credit card debt, and all of a sudden they're back in intense amounts of credit card debt because they didn't have enough to cover the emergency. Yeah, that sounds very Ramsey-esque, right? This $1,000 emergency fund. But as you said, like life has changed. Talk about how millennials you think are doing in 2023 compared to 2017 or 2013. Are things more bleak or, or better off? Yeah, I wish there was an easy answer to that because it feels like there's an optimistic darkness is the kind of the only way I can describe it. (laughs) I like that. It's it's as if we're all like, don't worry, things will still be okay. But feeling a little bit like, ooh, the oldest of us are into our 40s, like not just turning 40 this year, but into our 40s. I am really smack dab in the middle of the generation. I turned 34 in a couple of weeks. And that I think is very telling. And also, you know, I keep referencing other media, but I was watching a a television show recently and a boss calls in an employee and says, you're a Gen Zer, right? She's like, no, I'm a millennial. And he goes, oh, you're useless to me. And then calls another (laughs) employee. And that I think also kind of sums up the feeling right now is we were the talked about generation for so long. And now, obviously, makes sense. Gen Z, new kid on the block, hot young thing that gets talked about constantly. And we're over here like, wait, no, we still have problems. And like, we still would like to be part of the discussion. And now they're attacking us and boomers are attacking us. And like, we don't know what to do. But on the flip side, I, I have a lot of optimism. I've always been bullish on my generation. I do feel that things are going to work out. Our timelines, our experiences just look a lot different, but it is, oh man, it is incredibly frustrating. Like housing market. I mean, could we just get a break? Could we just (laughs) catch a break? And that all of these kind of elements and signifiers of adulthood to some degree, it just feels like every time we get a toehold, something comes along and is like, nope, I don't think so, millennial. And we have phased into a point where a lot of us are getting married, maybe starting to expand families and have children, want to buy homes. The number of my friends, and I'm not just speaking specifically about New York or specifically about major metropolitan areas, the number of my friends who have been iced out on trying to buy homes and have put in offer after offer after offer, and this is just true across the country, it just feels like we have been lied to about this is what's going to happen. And then you try to do it and all of a sudden you can't. Again, not here to be the whiny millennial. I know that some folks are already like, okay, we've heard enough about this particular phenomenon. But I am optimistic, but it does feel bleak. Like two things are a bit true. It's so uncharted territory, right? Because we've never had a pandemic. We've never had the things that have happened in the last five, 10 years happen. So it's always easy. And we do this with the stock market all the time, right? We say, you know, it always ends up fine in the end. 
nothing new is in the world. The things work the way we think they work, but the pandemic kind of threw us off and, and the great resignation. And there's just been this series of changes. And I feel like we haven't really caught our footing yet. And millennials coming of age during this time, really hitting their strides, right. In their thirties and forties, that place where we're supposed to be finding some stability, I think it's led to difficulty for the generation specifically. Yeah, stability and peak earning years. You know, I'm really curious how that's going to impact us in the long run, especially thinking about people's retirements, is that there has been so much upheaval in a decade for us where things were supposed to be, we're getting the promotions, we're ascending the ranks, we're being able to earn more, save more, invest more, buy property, whatever it is. And then you get put back on your heels And for some folks, like two years worth of having to tread water, that's a lot. And so many industries were impacted. You know, this wasn't an isolated situation to maybe one, two, three industries. We're talking dozens across the board and things that didn't even seem related remotely. All of a sudden, folks are in long-term unemployment or underemployed or unable to afford their previous lifestyle that didn't even exist because you couldn't go do the things you previously wanted to do. And that part impacts other people in their industries. You know, it just, again, this happened to everyone. I get that. But you do have to think about the inflection points that it's happening to certain people and then what the long-term ramifications are going to be. Not dissimilar to the older boomers who really saw their retirement portfolios take a massive hit in 08. And all of a sudden it's like, well, guess I'm not going to be retiring when I thought I was going to be retiring. I now have to stay in the game for five, maybe 10 years longer than I thought so I can recoup. And we're seeing some version of that, I I feel, happen to millennials right now. And Gen Z, something will come for you. I I don't know what to say. (laughs) Just be prepared. Yeah, the us Gen Xers are trying to just sneak through unscathed. We'll see. Oh, you're getting hit with the sandwich generation thing that's coming for us sooner yes. or later. I mean, that's the other very part much of so. Yeah, is that Gen X is being squeezed with the rearing of children and the caring of aging parents, but millennials are rapidly aging into that category, and very few people are talking about that yet. Yeah, and there's no question it is a squeeze. I want to pivot to the workbook. Let's talk about your three previous books and this book, because in some senses, as I'm reading through this, and I'm a big fan of your books and your blog, and I've read all of your books, in some senses, this feels very much like a summation of your first three books, and yet it feels different. Tell me about how you think this book differs. I am more experienced and older. I think that that's just simply part of it. You know, I've I've seen more, I've experienced more. I have sometimes I get nervous, especially with a brand called Broke Millennial, where I already admitted to I'm not broke anymore. Sometimes I get nervous that part of what made the series and the whole work fun in the beginning and like irreverent and playful is that I was very much in these phases of life. I did understand what it was like. And I was more sharing my experiences of going through things and here's how I figured it out. And the workbook feels a little bit more like, Hey, I'm your big sister. This might not be a great example, but I used it recently. It's like, I'm your big sister from your dad's first marriage, who's maybe like 12 (laughs) years older than you are, who comes back with all the knowledge and the experience, but is still your big sister. You just kind of have like a weird age gap or like 
maybe just your, you know, I have a cousin who has a 12 year age gap because someone was an oopsie doopsie. I'm not saying who. So I do feel like that's a little bit more of the energy of the workbook is like, I've gone out, I've seen things, I've experienced things. Let me come back and share this knowledge with you. And it's more of a retrospective as opposed to I'm currently in it and going through it. Do you think it challenges the readers in a different way than your first three books? I feel like I'm a little bit, and I'd only say a tiny bit more firm in the workbook compared to, especially the original book. And not that I have hard and fast rules, but then I'm like, yeah, there is a lot of nuance and shades of gray, but also decisions get made. And if you don't make decisions for yourself, someone else or a situation is going to make a decision for you. It's like, how about we take control and make the decisions for ourselves? And I feel that I think a lot of that has grown out of to the third book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, where one of my big takeaways from that and all the interviews I did is that, wow, it is really easy to let other people spend our money and that you can do everything right in terms of you're paying off your debt, you're building the emergency fund, you're in, you know investing for retirement, you're just making all the right moves. But if you can't set boundaries and say no to folks and talk and put your values and your priorities first, all the rest of it is for nothing. And that takeaway too, I think really reads through in the book as well, is really the focus on what do you want? What do you value? How are we putting this first and foremost? But also here's the reality of how money works. And that part's important too. Yeah. I definitely noticed in the exercises that the it really takes you through the paces of learning how to set boundaries in a lot of different ways, which is exactly kind of what you were talking about with your last book too, about how to have other people not figure your financial future. This book is also a little different. And you say this out front at the beginning that you can kind of skip around to chapter to chapter, but you also mentioned that before you do that, check out the first few chapters. Tell me about the organization, the first few chapters, and why that was an important prelude, even if you want to skip around once you get past them. Two part. First, I'll just address folks who like think they have it all figured out already. So then they just want to jump to the 201 level or what have you, because like, oh, no, I've read some of the personal finance books, or maybe they've read my first book. Like, no, no, I get it. I get it. I get it. Maybe you get it in theory, but putting your own numbers down on a page Ooh, few <laughs> things are more clarifying than when you sit and write something out, especially when it's your personal financial situation. So the first couple of chapters not only explain a lot of the basics of personal finance, talking about some of the basics of rules, understanding, you know, debt to income ratio and, you know, all of these kind of things you're going to hear about. And a lot of that to me is just getting people on the same language page so you understand the terms that are going to be getting used. And also quite a nod to the psychology of money, thinking, not the book specifically, just the concept, but thinking about how we emotionally relate to money, why that matters, why that's important, because that's going to come up time and time again in the workbook. So if you don't do the work to lay that foundation, the rest of the workbook is not going to be quite as helpful. Now, I certainly give you permission to skip like the credit score chapter if you're somebody who has like a 750 and has figured out how credit scores work. But if you skip the first stuff, it's really going to be less impactful to get later on in the workbook to the parts that matter for you. And then the other aside is for folks who are coming to this totally new to personal finance. And it just really is like, 
I know this can feel like a lot. I know this can kind of feel frustrating, but let's get some of the hard stuff out of the way first, especially again, facing your numbers, writing some things down, figuring out where we stand. And I fully expect that a lot of people will start and stop and have to come back because I do feel like that very first time you write out all of your debt information or write out your net worth. Oh man, that can be really painful the first few times. And I think it's also fine to do what you can And then if it's feeling like too much, step away, but please come back, please finish it because you can't make a plan unless you have the information. You were real intentional about putting the math first, right? Which is the thing that, that people maybe shy away from, but once you do it, that's like the end of it, right? The math kind of is that first and foremost, but then you move on to some of maybe the more interesting or at least easy to swallow stuff. That and also there's a lot of like, you can refer back to the hard work you already did for this page or this exercise. Or it could also be like, hey, maybe you got to this chapter six months after you did the initial hard work and you need to, you know, zhuzh and update a little bit. But for the most part, you get all of the painful stuff out of the way. That's also just, you know, different strokes for different folks. That's how I operate. I like to do the like stuff I don't want to do first. Even with how I write books, I always write the least interesting chapters to me personally first, and then I save the stuff that I'm really interested in for the end. What was the least interesting chapter for you, if you remember with this book? What was the hardest one to write? Oh, I mean, I also don't love the math sections. (laughs) I don't. They're not super fun for me. It's very dry and boring to kind of write. You know, it's a bit of a challenge to try to figure out how to make it a bit fun. But also, I mean, full disclosure, I am not a super, you know, I'm not an illustrator, which is clear in the book. I am not a designer. So also trying to think through like, how am I going to recommend they lay this stuff out? How is this going to look? How do I write two exercises? You know, I am somebody who just likes to sit and write, write, write. So to have to think through, no, no, this needs to look like an exercise or this is an exercise and it's not just a fill in the blank, trying to ideate on that was some of my like, oh, no, this is a fun new challenge for me. We are talking to Erin Lowry. She's the author of the Broke Millennial series of books. Her first book was named by MarketWatch as one of the best money books of 2017, We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. 
That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Erin Lowry. Her forthcoming book is entitled Broke Millennial Workbook, Take Control and Get Your Financial Life Together. Erin, what do you think is the biggest hurdle for millennials? Is it learning how to do money well or is it actually taking action? I'm getting back a little bit to my introduction here because I know I've kind of fumbled with the knowing versus doing. I think in any area of your life, the doing as much harder than the knowing. It's really easy to learn about something, to put it in action or to take the action that might not be the path of least resistance is tough. The other part too, I believe for any gen, but especially for millennials is getting over the mindset of, oh, I don't have enough. I'm never going to have enough the feeling of scarcity, the feeling of it's never going to get better. It can be really hard to bother trying when you're already feeling like, well, what's the point? Like truly every time it seems as if we're going to get some sort of a win, let's talk student loan cancellation. All of a sudden (laughs) it's like, well, never mind. Guess that's going to get taken away. So now I can't, you know, build a financial foundation, assuming that I'm going to dump $10,000 worth of student loans, whatever it is there is kind of a feeling of one step forward, two steps back. Oh, all of a sudden, you know, I've been contributing to my retirement account for the last three years, feeling really good. Oh no, a market dip is coming. And now it's horrifying to look at my portfolio. I get that it's happening to more than us, but it does feel like it, again, keeps feeling happening at these critical points in our journey to be able to progress forward. And so that just gets so demoralizing. So getting beyond the feeling of being completely demoralized to feeling as if you can take control and action and that your action actually will matter. That's where so many people have a disconnect is it's that feeling of, well, I've tried before and it didn't really make a difference. So why should I bother? And I do not have a good answer for that. I was about to say, why should they bother? I mean, it's it's a tough question, right? It is a tough question because the why is basically, all right, even before the pandemic, I remember I was starting to get questions late 2018, early 2019 that was very much in the, well, if the world's just going to burn, why do I need to bother focusing on a retirement plan? Why should I at all think about my financial future and not just really focus on today? 
And a lot of people weren't trying to be hyperbolic, like the feeling and the messaging really being like, hey, we don't know how long we're going to be able to like safely inhabit this world, or we don't know how long our country is going to stay stable or insert your area of concern here. And my response was always and remains, okay, acknowledge that it can be rational to feel that way, but also you're guaranteeing yourself a personal apocalypse if you don't lay some sort of groundwork for the future. So I do kind of feel like if we end up in a doomsday Mad Max scenario, we're going to be a little bit more concerned about things than just like the collapse of the financial markets. There's going to be like, you know, find water, hoard your medicine situations. Like one of my friends recently made the comment of she has a thyroid issue and she goes, I know I realized I would just like die instantly because if I can't get access to my medicine, then it's just game over. So again, we'd have like slightly bigger concerns. So how about we assume that that's not going to happen and do whatever, like hedge your bets you want in case it does. But let's just really focus on in case it doesn't, you're still going to be okay. There's a little bit of Pascal's wager there, right? Pascal's wager was this idea. We don't know there's a God or not, but we're going to assume there's a God because that's probably your best bet for the future. And maybe we have the same conversations with the apocalypse in our financial future. It may be coming, but at this point, it's probably best to assume that it isn't so you can plan and be okay if it doesn't. This book is different, clearly, from your other three books because these are exercises, because this is a workbook. Talk about the process of actually writing down answers in the workbook and how it changes behavior. Well, a big part of it is forcing yourself to think. And I know that sounds really weird and trite, maybe, but how often do we just go on autopilot with things in our life? And this really does make you reflect and ask yourself, what do I want? How is my money going to serve that goal? Has what I wanted changed in the last three to five years? Is that okay? I also, particularly for people who are in a partnership, really encourage doing this kind of work. And especially because what you were planning on five years ago might be very different than what one or both of you wants today. And if you don't look at money as dynamic and look at it as something that needs to be, you know, you're touching base, you're tweaking, you're iterating along the way, it is then no longer aligned with you and your desires and what you want. So hopefully putting pen to paper really can help people make a difference. I think back to just being in school and teachers saying, you know, if you write your notes, it's more likely to be committed to memory than if you type your notes. Who knows if that's actually true? I'm sure someone listening can be like, no, no, here's like three studies that proves that that's true. For me, it is definitely effective to write things out compared to just reading them. And again, it's something that forces you to not only just read on a high level about how something works, but actually going and doing your own research on your own financial situation and coming back with that information. Because it's incredibly simple to read personal finance books and never log into your bank account or never check your retirement portfolio. And a workbook is really going to say, hey, we can't progress forward if you don't go get this information. So in order to even make this effective, you have to face your numbers and you have to start that work. So I'm going to ask a potentially embarrassing question. Did you go through these exercises yourself? And also importantly, did you make your spouse who you lovingly refer to as Peach, did you make Peach go through these exercises? And what did you guys learn? So I have obviously been through all of them 
because I wrote them and I had to make sure they worked. But <laughs> also, he has been through most of them. He definitely hasn't done the matching investment terms one, I will say. I'd be curious to see how he to does. see how he, he does. <laughs> and I, I joke a little bit because he went on tour for part of my book tour, which was for Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. He went on several stops of that tour. And I'm curious how much has stuck with him. Because admittedly, like many partnerships, I'm the one who handles the majority of things around the money because I find it interesting and I'm engaged with it. And he gets updates and has access to everything, but isn't as interested in it. So then doesn't always have the same level of information all the time. And that's true in a lot of partner dynamics, which is why I always encourage folks to have discussions about, can both of you function as chief financial officer in your relationship? Because I say a lot, hey, if I get hit by a New York City bus tomorrow, can you take over? And not to use scare tactics, but that stuff's important. And also back to the point, the one that we do use a lot, the exercise that we use a lot, and I would say is actually arguably a little bit based on something that we routinely do is talk about our goals. Because goal setting is the foundation of your financial plan. Well, if it's currently not, it needs to be. And we do have, I would say more than monthly, maybe conversations about what our goals are. Are they still serving us? Is that what both of us want? And we, as a married couple, function with a hybrid model in that most of our stuff is joint, but we each have one independent checking account that's just for us to spend how we wish. And we also talk about individual goals and interests and desires, and then communal interests, goals, and desires. Individual usually is more like, he wants to buy a pass to Comic-Con. I want to book a flight to go meet my friend's baby. Like stuff that's just like personal things that you want to do. And talking about how that works into our individual budgets and the household budget as well. So non-authors, when they think about writing a book, figure that we all come to the table knowing exactly what we think and then just putting it down on page. You and I both know that actually in the process of writing a book, it changes the way you think. And usually the final product actually has things in it that you might not have even realized were going to be there when you started. Tell me a thing or two that came about while writing the book that surprised you. I actually want to call to book three because it's such a good example of you don't know what you don't know and how we all have intense blinders on based on our own lived experiences. So I was writing a book that was all about how to navigate awkward money conversations. And I had split it up into four categories, work, family, friends, and romance. And a big part of it was interviewing. Obviously, I'm not talking about all of this from my own lived experience. And so I had been at a work event and part of the work event was kind of a round table discussion. And in it, one woman really sort of piped up about how another person was sort of describing the way community should work. And she was from a very different background than the original speaker. And she sort of brought up like, yeah, that's all well and good if this is your lived experience, but my lived experience is X and these two things are not compatible. And it just really got me thinking. And I went up to her afterwards and so, you know, I'm writing a book about how to talk money with parents and, you know, you talking a little bit about your dad's retirement situation and you do have siblings, but that you might have to be the sibling that steps up and, you know, for X, Y, Z reasons, this would happen. I'm just really fascinated in interviewing you. And how do you approach those conversations? 
So fast forward, I do the interview with her a couple of weeks later. And most of the time when I interview somebody for any of the work I do, I'll ask, do you recommend I speak to anybody else? And at the end, she goes, yeah, actually, just curious. Have you spoken to anyone that's an only child of a single parent? Hmm. And I said, no, I never would have even thought about that. I have siblings. My whole lived experience is from the lens of having siblings. My husband has siblings. No one in my immediate life that's really close to me is an only child. So I didn't even think about the level of pressure that you are going to have on yourself with caregiving if you are an only child, particularly to a single parent, when then all of the burden, and I hate to use that word, falls on you. And I was like, I, I don't, do you have any recommendations? And she referred me to a friend of hers and it was one of the most interesting conversations and also talking about boundary setting, talking about, you know, just how you even navigate those. And obviously every only child's experience is going to be different, but if you don't ask folks for input and for feedback, you are always going to miss opportunities to have a much richer, fuller, more dynamic conversation. And I feel like that made the book more well-rounded and more interesting for one, but then also kind of thinking about the workbook, I, the workbook stands on its own, but it definitely is tied to all three of its predecessors. And I do think in the talking about money sections that kind of come up in the workbook, I had a little bit of that in the first book, but it's so much more interesting because of the work that I did on the third. And if you don't ask people open-ended questions as well. You're, if you're just seeking one type of answer and then you just end at getting that kind of response, it reduces a lot of very interesting conversation and information that you could have. And you can't keep all of it in, which is the other hard part, like what has to get cut, but trying to represent as many points of view as possible is always an interesting challenge. So Aaron, let's round out the conversation a number of people listening right now are millennials or have millennials in their lives. And I like to talk about the first steps because I feel like this is where we always get tripped up is like, what are the first steps? So if you are a millennial listening to this, or if your child is a millennial and you are trying to help get them to first base, what are kind of some of the first things you can do to begin? Because I think we get so flustered at the beginning that we sometimes are kind of stressed into inaction. First, just creating really bite-sized goals, like micro goals, I like to call them, that you can set up to achieve something. So I always find it's very important to backwards plan in the sense that if your goal is to save $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever it is, that's great. Like when people say, oh, I want to be a millionaire. Beautiful. Win. How long is it going to take you? What's your timeline? How much can you set aside? Like you have to really put so much context into any type of goal that you're setting. So if you want to save $10,000, okay, how long do you want to save it in? Four years? Okay, great. That means you have to save $2,500 a year. Now we can break it down into months. Heck, you can break it down into days if you want. So making sure that when you are creating any sort of goal for your life, especially your financial life, how much specificity are you applying to that goal? How many goals do you have? Is it realistic based on your means and your financial situation? Which ones are going to be getting prioritized? I do strongly believe in prioritizing different goals over the other and then checking in every couple of months to make sure those still serve you. 
But the big thing, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm listening to a personal finance podcast, I like got to have it together. But you have a person in mind that you want to help. Please tread lightly. Be real careful. I get asked a lot, how do I make so-and-so do X? You don't. You are not making so-and-so do anything. You can encourage, but that needs to not look like lecturing. That needs to not look like condescending. You could, I love coming at conversations from the angle of goals. If your friend says, you know, something flippantly, like I can't afford that, or I wish I could do that coming from the perspective of, oh, you know, what's standing in your way of being able to take a trip to Japan. And maybe they'll say, oh, I have student loans or I have credit card debt. And if you have experience paying those things off saying, oh man, I mean, I've, I've dealt with that too. It's really hard. If you ever want to talk about it, I'd be happy to share what worked for me. Don't just immediately overshare and start to lecture about how things work. Just offering up yourself as a resource or, hey, I listened to this great podcast or I did this great workbook and it really helped me. This is what worked for me. Maybe it'll help you. And then back off. Let people come to you in these conversations. I do feel like we so often like unlock something for ourselves. Like, oh man, this really works. This is great. I love this so much. I have to go evangelize for this thing to everybody in my life. Everybody in your life might not be interested. Like we all know what it's like when your one friend gets super into like a certain type of workout and then they're like, hey, you got to come with me and do this. Or like, I'm eating this way. You have to eat this way. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have to knock it off. I cannot with this right now. Don't be that guy for personal finance either. Like just be open, be a resource, but don't overstep the boundary with other folks either. All of this is about boundaries at the end of the day. And then I would also encourage everyone who's listening. It's like, I know it all about personal finance. You might be surprised. You also might be surprised about the fact that you have the basics down or maybe even a little bit beyond the basics down, but you really still are struggling with the part about telling your friend no to that birthday dinner or saying no to being in somebody's bridal party or not be, or being willing to admit that you can't afford to go to Tulum for a bachelorette party which if we could like just really knock it off with the wedding stuff. <laughs> that's, that that's, would a, be my that's, next a, that's a recurrent theme, I think, in your books, <laughs> the wedding yeah. stuff. I mean, I've had them and I say them because I got married twice before it was trendy pre-pandemic. And I did the best that I could to make sure that no one was going to be in a situation where they felt like I can't afford this. I can't do this. Because I have been in that situation and it is, it's tough. It's tough. And that applies to, you know, every stage of life has some version of that. And it is really learning how to figure out what you want, figure out how to make that happen, but also living in the ecosystem of society, right? Like we can't just be opting out of everything that we don't want to do. There is also a level of investing into family relationships, friendship relationship, workplace relationships. So this isn't me saying just, if you don't want to do it, say no, always, always protect your money. Sometimes it is about investing into something larger than what you want. It's about investing into the relationship, but you can read the workbook for a little bit more balance and information about how that works. (laughs) So Aaron, you've branded yourself broke millennial Talk about non-millennials using this workbook. I mean, 
I have to admit, I read through this whole thing. I'm Gen X. There was nothing in this workbook that said, oh, this is only for millennials. Yeah, it's for everyone. You know, whoever wants to read it except Gen Z. Just kidding. You're more than welcome. <laughs> Come on in. The water's warm. I I just also, any chance with Gen Z, I joke just because of how much heat we got. And I feel like so often they're looked at as like the, the saviors. I'm like, no, 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 no. A little bit of generational hazing is the the prerequisite, right? Like we earned our stripes to be able to do that, but also they're great. So it does not matter your gen at all. It's called broke millennial because that's what I was at the time. And at the time that everything started, so little was actually for us. Like so much was not written for us. And now there's just a boon, like everything it feels like is for us in some way, shape or form. But very few things addressed millennial centric concerns like, should I be investing while I have student loans? You know, things that do require some level of nuance just weren't being discussed because they weren't the same kind of issue for previous generations. There are some references here and there that might be a little millennial centric, but the work itself, good for anyone. So the book is Millennial Workbook, Take Control and Get Your Financial Life Together. Aaron, what is the best way for people to get this? And, and when is it out? It comes out May 9th, 2023. And the best way to get it, because it's sold wherever books are sold, but I would encourage you, if you can, to shop locally. If your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can request it. And if you're listening to this and you're like, I got to be honest, getting a workbook is not in my budget, check your library. And if your library doesn't have it, then you could request that they order it. Also, if you get it from the library, like make sure to buy a notebook to write the exercises in because don't muck up the library's copy for someone <laughs> yeah, else down the road. Yeah. But really, wherever books are sold, and I do encourage supporting small business in your local bookstore if you're able. Well, Aaron Lowry, thank you so much for coming on to Earn and Invest today. It was wonderful to be back. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. I've said it over and over again. You can't commoditize time. In the English language, we tend to use money as time as interchangeable. We talk about buying time or selling time or wasting time. All things that make it sound like it's exchangeable with money, but it isn't. Time and money are separate entities. The thing about it is time passes no matter what we do. It is non-modifiable we can't begin it and we can't stop it. It happens. All we have control of is which activities we're involved in during that time and how we experience that time. So which activities we're talking about, what we do in our day-to-day -day life. That time is passing no matter what you do. But we do have a modicum of control over what we decide to do during that time, what jobs we take, how we spend time with family, what we do with our lives. We can change that a little bit, and we can also change a touch about how we perceive time. My favorite metaphor for this is this idea that if you hit a stopwatch and wait five minutes and then hit it when the five minutes are over, that'll be one perception of time. On the other hand, if I tell you to get in the planking position, which if you don't know what that is, it's a position where you're 
prone on the ground and supporting your whole body with your core, if you try doing that for five minutes, you're going to perceive time as a lot longer than when you were just sitting with that stopwatch. And the reason why is because what you're doing is difficult. So we perceive time differently at different times of our lives. When we're kids, we see the t- we say that time lasts forever. I mean, if you remember being in third grade and in the middle of the winter session of school and waiting for summer to come when you were off from school, it seemed like it took forever. On the other hand, when you're my age, almost 50, time seems to fly and the seasons come and go quickly. I've heard people who don't agree with me. They'll say, nonsense. Money buys time. I've done a really good job of working hard, making lots of money, investing it. Now I have that money. And with that money, I can quit my job. I can do whatever I want with my time. And therefore, money just bought me time. And I mean, that's a great argument. But what most people don't realize is it is true. Money now gives you options of what you are going to do with your time. But remember, how did you get that money in the first place? Well, somewhere way back when, you decided to fill your time, the activity you decided to do during that time that was passing, when you were younger, years back, you decided to work, to make money. So you were filling your time, sometimes even with activities that maybe you didn't enjoy. It's not that money is buying you time in the future, it's that you paid for that time Earlier on in your career, when you chose to fill that space, those allotments of time you have with activities that would make you money so that you could eventually use that money later on to feel some sense of having more control over what activities you put into those time slots later on in life. So nothing is for free and money doesn't buy time today. It just means that there was some time way back when when you had to work hard to make money, maybe fill those time slots with things you didn't love doing so that now you'd have the freedom to do what you want. And I could hear the naysayer saying, well, haha, but, you know, money compounds. So it's true. I had to fill my time with activities I may not have loved early in my career to make lots of money. But once I took that money, put it into investments, Once I did that, it started compounding on its own, and the value of that money increased in a much greater proportion than the value of the time. So a day is still a day, working a day 10 years ago versus not working a day today. But that money that I made 10 years ago is worth a lot more than it is today, and I guess that's true. But money is not the only thing that compounds. So do experiences and adventures, and even activities we use to fulfill that time. So I might have worked a day 10 years ago, and the money I made might be worth a lot more now. But maybe if I had taken that day and gone with my family to the beach, those experiences would have compounded and would have ended in joy today, the joy of remembering that time I was with my family when my kids were little Now they're 10 years older, and I can never get that time back. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't commoditize time. Money does not buy you time. They are not interchangeable. And I think, I think we should stop trying to make them. 
Now, also when it comes to time, as I was saying, you can decide which activities to fill your time with because time is going to pass no matter what. Well, there is an activity I would love for you to be involved with while time is passing, and that is reading my book, Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. The way I'm going to make it even easier for you to do that is I'm going to give away a book every week. And all you have to do is earn and invest listeners is you have to go to Apple and leave a review of this podcast on Apple and then find a way to contact me, whether it be social media or my email or my website, and let me know that you left a review. In fact, copy and paste it in the email so I can see it. At the end of the week, I will choose one of all the people who leave me a review and give a free book away, and I will be doing that once a week. So go ahead, take a listen, leave an Apple review, let me know, and one lucky winner every week will get a free copy of Taking Stock. I can't wait for you to check it out. And now, let's go to the after show. All right, I keep things running just to kind of capture any of the after show or what we talk about. Is there anything that we didn't talk about about the book that you want to get out there? No, I don't. I don't think so. I feel like it's good. I'm glad you liked it. I did. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And again, I'm in that contemplative place right now where I really am thinking about action. And so I love the fact that the exercises are there and the questions are being asked and the space is there to write in the book if you so choose. Like, to me... In my life, I've realized that just reading passively isn't enough. Um, yeah, and, same. And so I've like, and so a little bit about my story. When I wrote my book, I actually decided to put some exercises at the end, but it was not like this amazingly intentional. I had been planning out that the whole time. It's just when I started writing, I'm like, okay, this is really philosophical. I need some exercises here to kind of drive it home, etc. Um and over time, the feedback actually got was that that was like a deeper, more important part of the book. And I think it really changed my ideas a little bit about how we get information forward. And again, I think it's wonderful to write these beautiful paragraphs that drive home these amazing points. Um, but there is a step further I think people need to take if they're going to really change their lives. And I think the workbook aspect is is very important. And I think seeing more of these type of workbooks is, is probably a really good thing for personal finance. I think it'll be interesting too, as attention spans seem to shift, mm -hmm. that we might trend more towards them as well. Because I think when you capture somebody in a moment where they're reading and engaged to also then try to get them, I think, you know, I and a lot of people are like, you know, go grab a piece of paper and write something down when you're reading a book. And like, who's going to do that? Yeah. Maybe 5% of your readership. But so making sure that we're grabbing them in real time while they're going through it, but also creating bite-sized things. So you're not having to read a full chapter. And I used to joke that when book one came out, I, again, felt like it was very different than a lot of other ones because each chapter did sort of stand on its own and you could jump around. 
but that it was like a bathroom read. Like you can go in and go to the bathroom and come out with some personal <laughs> finance knowledge and not bathroom read in content, but in size that like, it's a yeah. quick bite-sized bits. And it's just funny to me that, you know, we're six years later, almost exactly. And the workbook's even like bringing that down to like a different level. It's like take even less time. <laughs> to do something. Although arguably in the end, it'll be more time because you have to go sign into all your accounts, write down all your information, stay engaged with this for a longer period, but it feels easier and faster, which I think is also a bit of the like bait and switch of workbooks in general is that you think it's just going to be like speed round. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, we're a short form world, right? Obviously with social media, et cetera. What's really also nice about the workbook format is you know, there's defined beginnings and endings. So like you can sit down, do a few questions, do some exercises and then stop. And there's a very natural beginning and ending points, which means you can fit it into, again, much more of our fast paced life where people's attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Um, And so you've created in this workbook, very clear starts and stops, which are much smaller bite-sized pieces. You know, it's funny with the attention span stuff. I, I think a lot of times people will just be like, oh, TikTok, Instagram reels, whatever. It's why we can't pay attention anymore. And like nothing to me really demonstrates the change in attention span than theater. Because hmm. my husband and I, at the end of last year, went to see Death of a Salesman. That show is three hours long. And we've seen a couple of older show revivals that were like fully two and a half, closer to three. And they're great shows but you can feel partway through. You're like, people used to just sit here. Yeah. Riveted. And then you go to something like six, which is an amazing show, 90 minutes, no intermission. And that to me, nothing better sums up our change in attention span than a play from not even that long ago, like just a few decades. If we're really being honest with ourselves to now something that went up in the last couple of years and is 90 minutes, no intermission. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.